Hey, I'm Tabby and welcome to It Looks Like Courage, the podcast. I realise that I share my life with a bunch of wonderful, courageous people. Not people that necessarily have done some huge courageous act, but just in the way they live their day-to-day lives, they're courageous people. They inspire me and teach me, and I wondered if others would enjoy learning from them too. Each episode will unpack a little of their lives and hopefully help you see where you're already being courageous, but also inspire you to be even more so. In this episode, I'm chatting to my friend Ash. I met him a few years ago when we were both working together in Watford. When he arrived, he slowly began to open up about parts of his life that had been really tough, and I've always admired the way that he's not run away from dealing with those painful moments and the effect they've had on him. Instead, he sat in the uncomfortable place of allowing them to surface and then to deal with them, no matter how vulnerable that made him feel. He's a brave man, and as he's stayed in the uncomfortable, he's become more and more who he wants to be. So today we've got Ash coming to talk to us. Um, Ash, you always laugh at me for asking loads of questions, and yet today you put yourself in a position where I can ask you whatever I want. I know, it's, it feels are a you, bit weird. Are you nervous? Uh, not really, I've had enough of your questions <laughs> over the past few years to be used to it, I think. Okay, yeah. So tell us about you, where did you grow up, with who? Um, I'm Ash, I'm 23 and I was born in a place called Gloucester, um, which is kind of near Wales, but still in England for those of you who don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I grew up as an only child um, with my two parents, uh, grew up going to church, all that kind of stuff though, my dad didn't go to church for a lot of my life, um, and so it is my mum who took me. Um, I'm sporty, I love reading. Yeah. What are you reading at the moment? What am I reading at the moment? I'm reading uh, two books. One at the moment is about the archaeology of the Exodus story and whether it's true or not. Um, And then the other book is uh, like daily tips to be more sustainable in your life. Oh, that's cool. What's your best thing you've read so far? Um, Well, not in this book, but in a different book about sustainability. Um, It told me that the biggest impacts an individual can have on climate change is to not eat meat. Wow. So that's been so uh, recently gone veggie. Yeah. yeah, so. Are you heading towards vegan or just staying vegan? Uh, veggie for now, because I'm not sure how much of an improvement veganism is for stuff, but it's a gradual process, you know. You mm-hmm. have to learn how to do it rather than rush in guns blazing or whatever. So yeah. getting married soon, will your wedding be veggie? Um, it'll have options for everyone. Okay. <laughs> it'll have lots of different foods. So I'm actually going to be eating veggie, which is a recent choice. Yeah. But Steph will definitely be gorging on me. Yeah. <laughs> Big steak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you said that you love sport. And I know that tennis is a massive part, well, was a massive part of your life. Mm. But you still like tennis. You watch it. Yeah, yeah, you? yeah. So talk to me about tennis in your kind of childhood and stuff. Yeah, so... Uh, it is a weird one because if you looked at my family and you looked at me as an only child, you wouldn't have thought I'd be sporty. Neither of my parents are really sporty. I'm definitely not now. But um, they weren't in the past, but I somehow love sport. And about the age of seven or eight, my friend invited me to go along to tennis lessons on a Saturday at our local club. And I just started playing out. And yeah, I loved it straight away. And from sort of the age of seven to 14, it was literally everything in my life apart from 
faith on the side a bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, tennis was literally everything to me. I got into it really quickly. I got picked up by the coaches that like, identified as someone who was pretty naturally talented and started getting pushed through the youth system and playing sort of three, four, five times a week, depending on the week. Um, and yeah, it was literally everything to me. And people kind of talked to you about it being a professional career at some point, did they? Yeah, yeah. So obviously with sports, and especially individual sports like tennis, you get um, picked out, talent coached, whatever, um, scouted at quite an early age. And I was put into stuff that was, um, yeah, for talented people in the county. Um, I started playing tournaments and stuff. And I was, it was in my head, it was from, you know, sort of the age of maybe 10. I was like, this is it. This is what I want. Um, there's no other choice for me and that's why everything was tennis related um, so yeah I definitely was out of mindset from about 10 to 13 that was it I was going to play tennis I was going to play at Wimbledon um, yeah and then so then you said from 7 to 14 you played so what happened that stopped the game yeah so I think one of my biggest struggles with tennis was I was very naturally talented um, in a training session I could beat everyone I had I was, um, yeah, just gifted at it and good when my head was in a good place. Okay. But as soon as you put me into a competitive situation, there was just something that wasn't right mentally. Um, I just couldn't cope with it. I was like too much of a perfectionist. Um, and that's funny because that perfectionism just led to failure in the end yeah. where I'd lose my temper, my brain would go and I just couldn't concentrate and I'd lose against people that like I should have walked all yeah. over. And it just got so bad um, that it got to the point where when I was, by the time I was 14, I hadn't progressed in the way I wanted to um, in terms of everyone else around me at that level. I started falling behind and I kind of got to the point where I knew that already just a few years in at the 14, the dream was over. And it was pretty heartbreaking. Um, but I just knew that there was no point in paying, mm. playing anymore. There's no point in my parents paying thousands and thousands a year for lessons and so yeah, I had to make the decision to stop. And Did people try and stop you stopping? Were people like, no, keep um, going, keep trying? Or was everyone in a, kind of an agreement that maybe... My mum and dad definitely argued against it for a while. Um, I can't really remember having many conversations with my coaches, but I think they were aware, like everyone knew that I'd flunked it basically yeah. by not being able to compete competitively from at that young age. But it, so after a bit of persuasion, basically, my parents were like, yeah, all right, it makes sense. And yeah. And did you move quite quickly to something else? Like, you like, I'm going to um, do this instead? Or did you just have a bit of a... I mean, I started playing other sports, but I never had anything that was like my life as mm. much as tennis was. Nothing captured my heart. And so I started playing rugby casually at school and football and um, they're sports I love and I play football a bit now still and it's probably my favourite sport but um, no nothing captured my heart quite like tennis did back then. That's pretty huge isn't it at 14 to... Yeah it was definitely a massive heartbreak I remember being a wreck because of it yeah. and you know you go from ev basically most evenings a week out playing tennis and um, you're getting the endorphins whether you realise it or yeah. not from all that exercise and then suddenly um, you're not and you're more evenings in and you're more aware of life yeah. and what's going on around you and um, school suddenly isn't as fun because you haven't got the escape or yeah yeah, yeah. and so another part of your childhood that's like quite a 
big deal is that you were classified as a young carer. Yeah. So talk me through what that classification actually means. Yeah, so um, I didn't start off as a young carer, obviously as a baby, but uh, basically when I was maybe eight, my mum developed arthritis, which is a physical condition which affects um, your bones and um, just generally causes pain and movement and progressively gets worse as your life goes on. And so that was quite a big thing, um, but it wasn't majorly life-changing at that point. But then that starts to develop more and more. But then when I was 10, my dad as well wanted to join in on the act. Well, I say wanted to. Um, <laughs> wanted a blue disability card as well. And he ended up having to have one of his legs amputated, which was pretty grim. But basically, I think an artery or something blocked up in his leg over a period of time and sort of went unnoticed. And yeah, it was the choice of die from blood poisoning or have your leg amputated. But luckily, the second leg was actually in the same position, but they managed to save it a few months okay. later. And so, yeah, so from the age of 10, both my parents were disabled. Um, and I was classified as a young carer, technically being an only child, yeah. um, having two disabled parents. And although um, they were very, very, very functional and they uh, very they look after themselves and that's a lot so I didn't actually from my perspective it didn't feel like yeah. much but I'm sure if you compare it to people without disabled parents there was more stuff to do and, yeah and yeah. did any of your was anybody else in your friendship group or whatever did anybody else have that same scenario at home no so it's completely unique um yeah. I mean I was technically part of these like young carers groups run run by the council but I didn't really go much and make any friends yeah. and it felt like yeah I wasn't really connected to anyone so it was a very unique thing to me where everyone else's parents were, yeah. were healthy and could take them places and go on nice holidays and um, yeah were more function like physically functioning yeah. and could do more stuff yeah. And was it quite traumatic in your home after your dad had a leg amputated that's quite a massive like thing to happen to somebody and that must have had an impact did it have an impact on your home? Yeah, well, naturally it does, doesn't yeah. it? Um, massive life-changing things. So, like, normally, I guess in a family where there's one person who has a life-changing injury yeah. like that, like, let's say my mum, not in a normal circumstance, would be able to help out and um, take on more responsibilities around the house, which they did, whether they had a choice mm. or not. But um, it was different because my mum was disabled as well. And yeah. so, um, yeah, there was a lot of struggles in that and a lot of adaptation and... A lot of, um, yeah, a lot of change and it changes the atmosphere of my life. I wouldn't say it changed because I don't know any different, but yeah. I'm sure it would have looked very different without these two sort of disabilities and things. And yeah, and it was, and it just led to struggle, doesn't it? Yeah. When you have something like that. And my dad at the time, he didn't have faith. And so for him, it was just like life was throwing everything at him. And yeah, um, yeah it just kind of led into a bit of spirals within both my parents really in life and so at the same time like you you talked about loving primary school but really not enjoying secondary school so at this point you were kind of transitioning yeah. towards secondary yeah. school what what did you not enjoy about school um well yeah again so I was year six when it kind of starting year six when it happened and so getting used to life and um I was pretty clever at primary school or compared like in my class I was one of the brighter ones and so 
I was definitely, and I was in a small primary school, so I was kind of yeah. top dog, if that makes sense, <laughs> but um, without being too cocky or whatever. But uh, yeah, and then I transitioned into a secondary school, which was an all-boys grammar school. You had to pass tests to get in, and I somehow did. And uh, suddenly I wasn't top dog anymore, and um, I was struggling at home, like life was really hard at home. And um, and then I'd come to school, and I'd, it'd be even worse. Like yeah. I'd hate it even more. I didn't fit in right from the start. I was sort of bottom of the pecking order, or I gave up, so I became... Yeah bottom of the pecking order academically and um, although I had sports here and there and some like good friends in school just to hang out with it wasn't uh, much better than no. the chaos everywhere else in life yeah so then so you, basically it's pretty isolated wasn't it like the experiences that you mm. had like just even thinking about a 14 year old giving up on a dream you don't yeah. tend to realize at 14 you can't do what you're hoping to do yeah your parents are both in a situation that is different to any of your other friends parents mm. school's really hard and then more stuff happens with your dad yeah which you can talk about if you're happy to yeah yeah so uh well actually both parents really were so my mum has a lifelong history of struggling with depression and episodes of depression and so when I was sort of 12 maybe I think 12 yeah that really kicked in and I had some horrific times of her with serious serious depression um but luckily nothing no nothing major happened it was just a lot of ongoing struggles and arguments and for me as a 12 year old not really understanding and that this actually wasn't really my mum it was this mental stuff going on within yeah. her that was um making her act differently and um, say stuff that wasn't her and then a few years later having my dad having everything happen to him and sort of because my mum was being dealt with and everything was going on with that and I was probably a little bit troublesome and um, with different things and tennis at that time my dad's sort of depression snuck under the radar a little bit and then um, I remember one night I was at a sleepover at my friends um, and then the next day I was in school and my mum picked me up from school which was like super rare never yeah. happened just because of busyness of life and everything else and yeah and she's like um dad's in hospital because last night he tried to overdose and um obviously as like a 14 year old I was kind of like what like yeah. I understood it but it was such a weird concept but equally at the time it had it didn't really affect me a lot because I was already pretty yeah. numb to everything else I'd just about to quit tennis like my dream had gone things at home like with these disabilities with all the depression were rough school was rough so I was kind of pretty numb but mm. yeah so that was kind did of you, with your dad like did, did were you able to talk about it could you ask him questions or, or you literally just didn't even um not till much later no. in life like I knew what was going on and um he came home pretty quickly and recovered pretty quickly which yeah. is amazing and it's actually the story that sort of led to his become having a faith late a few years yeah. later but yeah no we haven't even now we haven't talked about it loads but um we processed a little yeah. bit yeah so like as like an adult looking at you as like this 14 year old boy like part of me just wants to cry and also it's, it's like I'm trying to work out like what like what 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 did you think like how did you process that you said you were numb but all of us like try and make sense of stuff don't we and yeah. I think especially like you're saying, like you just didn't know what depression really did, and even yeah. like what is an overdose? How do you get to that point? What like what kind of things did you start thinking, or like, you know, how how did you manage to understand that? Well, I think just naturally when all these things are going on around you, and it feels like 
your whole family is getting screwed over but I was kind of in my head I was like actually nothing major was happening to me mm. but it was just around me I was kind of starting to think oh is it my fault and like mm. there had been stuff like yeah just where it was a lot of starting to look at myself and be like is this because of me mm. is this stuff that I'm causing is the depression my fault is it um what's going on at school purely my fault and nothing else like and it just kind of led to a lot of um self-loathing and mm. feeling like yeah just not worth it and just life isn't worth it and um yeah there's just a lot of not feeling good about myself and um feeling like wherever I go or whatever I do is mm. just going to lead to failure or pain for those around me and yeah and did you talk about that at all was that very much like an internal um story and process yeah I'd say it's pretty internal I mean we had I had a little bit of support at church um like I had it like a decent youth worker when I was 14 um but it wasn't like like incredibly good relationship and stuff and I had friends but obviously no one else really was in my situation or could understand at 14 um what was going on so yeah very much by myself and even school you know they weren't they were aware of everything but pretty useless more focused on the fact I wasn't achieving academically (laughs) yeah was there Um, any shame for you in it like in terms of you know, like I don't know, asking those questions like why why would my dad not necessarily want to be here? Like was there any shame that that stopped you talking or, or did that not come into your thoughts? I don't think there was ever shame about that actually. Um I definitely something I've always struggled with is or definitely when I was a kid struggled with shame about more for me, not my mm. parents, but I was the kid with the disabled parents. Okay that's when I kind of felt a bit of shame yeah. but um, yeah not really the other depression related stuff. It really reminds me I don't know if you've read I think it's Rising Strong by Brené Brown and she talks about like there's almost like a part of our brain that needs to have an understanding to a story so you make your own narrative up and it almost like makes your brain feel better that you've got something but so often it's it's wrong like it's mm. not so for you it's like you're looking at the situation thinking it's my fault yeah. and you've almost created a like a way of it being okay that it's your fault yeah, yeah. even though it's not okay kind of thing um so you talked a bit about like this self-loathing and kind of hatred of yourself and feeling like everyone around you is going to end up in pain and yeah, yeah. and then you actually said like you questioned is it worth it yeah and like how, how did you decide maybe it was worth it and what was it like to be at that point where yeah it wasn't? so i kind of got uh 16 and um I think probably I was never diagnosed but I picked up depression and mm. um yeah I was so low and I remember this one specific event where I was 16 I used to go for just walks with my headphones in because um, I lived in quite a nice village so it was always fine just to go out and whatever but I we had these um two bridges in the village that had train tracks and um, going over the train tracks and I remember just one night I was just feeling I probably had an argument at home or I was just feeling so low about life and I just went and sat on one of these bridges and like I was never I'd never said I was suicidal or anything I mean I've definitely like thought about what if and Mm. and that was one of those moments where I was like what if I just jumped what if I just stopped um but I was never like actively pursuing it which I feel quite lucky about Mm. but um yeah so I was sat on this train bridge 
and I just remember being like, what if I do this? What happens? What um, will people care? Will people notice? And I just had this thought that just suddenly came into my mind that was, um, you're made for more than this. And it was like, I was like, what? And it was, and like looking back and I was like, that's so clearly God speaking to me because God speaks in the quiet whisper. Mm. Um, but it was the, yeah, it was that moment of like, you're made for more than this. There's more to life than this. There's more for your life than, than this. And that was, yeah, a significant yeah. point for me and a significant turning point, I think. And did you believe it? Like even though, cause it was like almost like a foreign thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I did. Well, yeah, yeah I think it, even though for the next few years there was still loads more pain and suffering and um, depression and change and stuff, but actually I think that was, yeah, around 16 there was a lot of different things that were turning points, mm. but that was definitely one of them that amongst everything I just felt like, no, there's more, this can mm. get better, life can get better. But, and did yeah. you, when we talk about like creating those stories, like to try and make sense of stuff, did you ever, were you just, did you have an impression of God of like, he doesn't care about me, or I don't know, all those kinds. Of, or were you always quite sure of what he was like in in the midst of the pain? You know, I think there was always an underlying assurance of faith. I always like growing up. I knew God. Like I encountered the Holy Spirit when I was like nine, ten for the first mm. time, and um, I knew him, and I knew he was there, and what he wanted for me. Um, but there was definitely though when you're in those moments and everything's hot and mm. um, flat r- roar and um, stuff I definitely had I think one of the things I used to ask is like is God just looking and laughing at me mm. like but I think that was just in the heat of the moment so always mm. when I like calmed down and reflected and God, I always knew that yeah that there, that wasn't the case that God was yeah. sad that God wanted more yeah. and that yeah that there was more and that he wanted more so where like you said that was a big turning point along with some other things which you can tell us about but did it just create hope for you or like what was it that you think that 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 in that moment that like you're made for more what did that do i think it just created a an underlying hope yeah um an underlying feeling of that there is yeah that god had more for my life that there's life's more than just pain and suffering yeah. and what i'd experienced for the last six seven years um and i think that it just creates something that like in my core of who I am there's that line that you're made for more than this and that's what's kept me going and inspired me and given me courage for life and stuff yeah that's amazing so then you um did a levels well moved to different schools to a levels didn't do so well in your first year yeah retook them and then kind of did like a kind of gap yearly type thing with youth pastor who's a really important person yes in your life yeah. Um, and then moved to Watford. I did. All quite scary things. I don't know. Was that quite big to move yeah. to Watford and um, not really know what was going to be here? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like it happened so fast um, that I was meant to be going off to Peru on a like I mission trip. Okay. Um, but then God spoke to me very clearly about Sol 61 and moving to Watford and um, the money just came together like it was meant to be. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and, but I was definitely at the stage where I was so ready to move away from home. Yeah. You know, I'd spent 21 or 20 years at the time at home. And, um, like, actually, I love going home and I, uh, I love my parents, but it is a place that now, looking back, has yeah. a lot of 
bad memories and experiences and pain and so I was so ready for mm. moving and a fresh start and that's exactly what happened like yeah I came and I had a fresh start in life basically did you feel quite like a walking wounded person though like because you we've talked about this but mm. like you, you hadn't met anybody that had any yeah. of the same experiences as you yeah so there's a huge loneliness in your story yeah it's, it's pretty massive like a bunch of experiences you've had that people probably wouldn't have had in 20 years maybe yeah. it, like a slightly longer stretch yeah um and then you kind of come in and you're expected to be vulnerable you're expected to share stuff yes um, yeah, definitely, like, I was walking in, not even realising, I think, how broken I was, um, and the vulnerability stuff, which now is, I think, it's, it's essential to life, yeah. I'm so aware of how good it is, I wasn't to start with, but, as you know, uh, you and Bob, your husband, <laughs> broke me down, and, it's not um, Bob, I didn't break you, <laughs> yeah, well, in a good way, broke me down and helped start, yeah. helping me rebuild, and, um, yeah, so something that you love is are wolves, and we've talked about this before, but one of the phrases that, that you kind of shared with me when we were pressing for this is you said having a wolf pack is essential to life. Yes. And I just love that because so much of your story actually is you doing things on your own, mm-hmm. but something that you've learned is that you want to be part of a pack, of a tribe, yeah, of a team. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about where that kind of yeah, revelation has come um, from. I just, I mean, it starts off with I love wolves. They're yeah. my favourite animal. <laughs> Um, and when you learn more about wolves, and I think it's common knowledge, but wolves are part of a pack. They yeah. they have these massive packs in which they have sort of inner circles and outer circles and that kind of stuff. And um, it just I've realised over my life that actually how essential that is. Going through that life of loneliness, and I had friends, but you know I they like it wasn't what I was craving that mm. close intimate friendship. But from the age of sort of 16, I started, yeah, forming this wolf pack. I started getting people, so like Jay, um, who was my youth worker from 16 to 18, and then my sort of mentor and boss onwards, um, he's was one of the first people to that I really trusted yeah. and became part of my close circle of friends who I could trust and knew would support me and I cared for me. And at the same time, I got my best friend Tyler, who I met then, and he's going to be my best man at my wedding, and he was another person I sort of added and then um, like sort of moved to Watford and um, I had you guys and like I met Steph, my fiance and some other friends who are my grooms at my wedding and like he's just realizing that actually it's so important mm. to have different people around you who bring different things but also just at the core of it is you really care for them and they yeah. really care for you and that you have each other's best interests and you can be vulnerable with each other. And that's sort of what a wolf pack is about and I think it's the only way to live. I'm now having all that, even though a lot of my wolf pack is spread out across yeah. the UK and the world now. But actually, I know that everywhere there's people who care for me, and mm. I couldn't live without it now. Yeah. And what did it require of you, though, to be part of the pack? Because you, you know you could be on the edge of the pack, yeah, yeah. but you're in the centre of your pack. Uh, well, since it's the theme, I think it <laughs> takes. Gotta say courage. Yeah, I think it, it did though. I think it does because to start off with, you have to. For me, it was a battle of valuing myself enough to realise that other people value me. Mm. I think that's such a battle our society faces now with like all the loneliness and anxiety we have. Like just realising there's enough value in you. For someone else to value you that was the hurt the first hurdle i had to overcome that was what 
Jay originally mm-hmm. when I was 16 brought I just instantly I knew that he valued me yeah um and so and that's just like the start of that journey and like yeah you slowly realize oh actually this person values me and this person values me and um actually yeah they actually do spend a lot of time with me and they mm-hmm. care for me and yeah so it's courage of learning to do that and then and then be vulnerable with people because that's any relationship needs vulnerability and mm. honesty and so yeah taking the courage to value yourself enough to allow others to value you yeah and when you reflect back on the last 20 years 25 years like can you see where it just took courage to like hold on or to because sometimes when you're in it you don't realize that you know you being a young carer there's courage somewhere mm. in there or you going to school every day yeah. even though it's rough like when you look back, what like what do you see as those moments that you? Um, I think, I think, I think it took courage for me to to carry on with school. I think it ended badly with my first secondary school, um, where they like. I don't know the way I wasn't kicked out at the end of my GCSEs but not welcomed back not and I felt failure yeah. and I felt awful and to take courage to move on and then when I failed my first year of A-levels and to um, go back and say actually no I want to do my A-levels I want this um, I think it took courage to um, not to move to Watford but to come and be open to, mm. to learning and changing and like I said being ripped apart and rebuilt basically yeah. as um, I feel like a new person I think that took courage um, yeah I think those are well maybe that moment on the bridge as well yeah that took courage to say actually life is worth living and actually it's worth to keep going through the pain just ready for when it gets better because yeah. it did get better you know yeah That's amazing. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me. Anytime.